We're going to dive right in because I want to save a little time at the end to celebrate communion together. Uh, I want to welcome you, though. Great crowd today, and I want to welcome everybody in at East as well. We've had a great attendance in there as of late. So uh, we are one church in a multitude of locations, and there's a large number of people uh, on Facebook site. So uh, on the Facebook, the kids call it, or wherever you are on Facebook. Uh, it, one, thing, one thing that was kind of cool last week, I was kind of ribbing you to say amen. I was like, you guys on Facebook, just give us some blue thumbs ups. And it just blew up with blue thumbs ups. So go ahead. We love the thumbs up. So we love the hearts. It makes us feel good. So go ahead. Uh, I want to welcome you, though. We're going to dive right in. We're continuing a series called The Unveiling. And I'm so excited to jump in. Uh, I, want, I want you to turn, if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to just hang out there today. But before we get there, I just want to read this. This is going to be on the screen for you. If you're really fast. Some of you old school church people, if you're like sword drill fast, anybody know what sword drills are? All right. You can flip over really quick to Philippians chapter three or just hit it on your, on your phone. Uh, Philippians chapter three, I want to read this from verse 10 just to kind of center our thoughts and then we're going to jump in. Philippians three verse 10 says this. These are the words of Paul and I want to, I want to remind you he's writing from prison. So I don't know what your mood would be or what your perspective would be in prison. Uh, and his prison was a nasty prison. And he's writing from prison that says this in verse 10. Here's it. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all of this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold. Everybody say, take hold. To take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Is anybody glad Jesus took hold of you? I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. There are some things that have yet to come. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's a good word. Can I get an amen? amen. I want to talk to you today as we continue our series and we continue our story of the Shunammite woman. For those of you who were here last week, I want to talk to you from the title, Taking Hold of the Promise. Taking Hold of the Promise. Let's pray. God, we ask right now in Jesus' name. Wherever we are here at the Valley Campus or whether we're in East Campus or in, in the comfort of our home or a hotel or at an airport watching online, Jesus, we know that you are omnipresent. That means you are everywhere at once. And I pray, God, through the power of your spirit in the truth of your word, would you speak to every heart? And God, I pray that you would fill every heart to the full, even to overflowing today. Jesus, we do believe you are the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Would you fill us today, we pray in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said. Amen. You can grab a seat. So glad that you're here today. Generally at this point, I'll, I'll start into my message and I'll spend quite a bit of time trying to lay the foundation of what we're going to talk about. But this week I need no real work because you're going to know exactly what the tension of this text is all about. So I'm going to jump in. If you have a Bible at Second Kings chapter 4, just to catch you up for those of you who weren't here last week, we, we were in the, the second week of a series called The Unveiling where we're looking at the stories of two guys called prophets or seers. These were 
God's spokespersons in the Old Testament, and specifically two heroes of the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. And we've, for the last few weeks, looked at a couple stories from this prophet Elisha, and we've been asking God to show us some things, to unveil some things before us that we might not have seen before. And so last week, if you were here, we talked about the story of the Shunammite woman, a woman who found herself unexpectedly expecting a baby. It was a miracle baby. The man of God, Elisha, showed up and gave her this promise about this time next year, you will have a child in your hands. And sure enough, we found out last week that it came true. And so we talked last week about what to expect when you're expecting. What do you do when you're about to give birth to the promise of God in your life? And we, we, we looked at that. And if you didn't catch that message, I'm not saying this to toot my own horn. I'm saying this to give gl- gl- glory to God. You need to go back and watch that because God, I think, has some things to say to you in there. But today, we pick up on part B. This is like the Empire Strikes Back of her story. This is the next, next episode of the Shunammite woman's story. And it takes an unexpected and even difficult turn as we jump in. If you're at 2 Kings chapter 4 in verse, let's jump into verse 16. Say amen. Are you there? Anybody got it open? Hey, good, good, good show. I hope in the East as well. Let's just jump in at verse 16. This is where we kind of left off last week. Elisha spoke out and he gave this promise. He said to the Shunammite woman, you will hold a son in your arms. I promise you, this is the word of the Lord. You will hold a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. But the woman did become pregnant. And next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. Verse 18, it goes on, and here's where it starts to take a different twist. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers. So they're out in the harvest field. And he said to his father, my head, my head. His father told a servant, carry him to his mother. He's not well, take him to his mother. Now, many scholars believe that this boy probably had sunstroke at this point. So in verse 20, after the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother... The boy sat on his mother's lap until noon, and then he died. He dies. Now, that that just happens fast. That's like one of those quick turns in the story. So, again, let's just catch everybody up. Woman gets a promise from God. It's a miracle promise. She wasn't even asking for it. Out of nowhere, God says, you're going to conceive a child. She believes on him. Sure enough, it comes true. The boy grows a few years. We don't know how old he is. Obviously old enough to go out and help dad in the field. But he goes out, but he's still young enough to sit in his mama's lap. Although I'm 33, I could probably still sit in my mom's lap if I really, really needed my mama. But uh, anyway, he's young enough though, that he goes out and helps his dad just for a little while. And we find he comes down with something, something fatal, and he dies in his mother's lap. Now, again, when we read a story from the Bible, it's easy to glaze over, but I know there are people actually in our body and in our, in our church family who have gone through the horror and tragedy of losing a child. This is actually, it goes to the absolute worst human tragedy that a human being can go through. I I suspect that is the worst pain anybody could ever go through is the loss of a child. And many people, uh, there are several people in our church that have gone through that. And by God's grace, he's carrying them. But that's a horrible thing. And this happens to this woman. And I want to ask this tough question today. What do you do when the promise of God in your life dies? Or, or what do you do? We, we can say at least she had the promise for a little while, a little bit. Maybe he was six, maybe he was eight. But what do you do when the promise of God or the word that God spoke that you chose to believe, what do you do when that word comes up half fulfilled at best? What do you do in the word of God? 
when the promise of God in your life seems half fulfilled? If you're like me, that's one of the great existential questions as a person of faith. I'm a person of faith, and I believe there is a God, and I believe he is good, and I believe he is a healer, and I believe he's a wonder worker. And yet there have been many seasons in my life where there has been a gap between my faith and what I trusted and my, and the, and my expectation and what my experience was. Has anybody ever seen that gap before? The gap between our expectations and even our faith and our experience. This is the gap. This is the great existential quandary that I find myself living in. And probably so many of you can know what I'm talking about is what do we do with that gap? How do we reconcile that gap between, well, God, your word said, trust me for a son. And now I'm holding my dead son. What do you do with the gap between what God has said and what you have experienced? What do you do with the gap? What do you do with those expectations? What do you do with the distance between how you trusted God and what you experienced? Now, I want you to know before we go any further, I believe my God is good and I believe he's able and I've seen him do miracles, but I also have experienced times in my life where what I trusted and what I believed and the the promise that I chose to hang on to seemed half fulfilled at best. And I don't know about you, you were in church and you can be honest. Maybe you've experienced that before in your own life. Maybe, maybe for you, you, it's with your children. You thought, you know, my, my, I want to bring up my kids in the faith. I want them to grow up to serve God. You brought them to church. You, you trusted the word of God. It says, you know, where the, where the word says, you know, train up a child in the way he should go and he will not depart from it. Or, you know, the word of God says, uh, my word will not return void. It shall return unto me and accomplish its purposes. And you know the word of God and you put it in your child. And then you thought, you know what, I'm going to get my child to church and I'm going to stop like skipping for hockey because I I want to get him there, and you did all the right things, and yet your son's not interested, doesn't want it. What do you do when the gap between your expectations and your faith and your experience, what do you do with that gap? What do you do when the promises of God seem unfulfilled? Maybe it's with your finances. Maybe last year, last spring, for those of you who are here, we did this big capital campaign where we, we said, you know what? God is asking us to give sacrificially. And you got a number in your head and you gave it and you thought that that was gonna return to you in a certain way and it didn't come in that way. And so here you are, you know, God, I heard you. You told me to do this and I did. And now I was expecting this and what I got, what I feel like I got is here. What do you do with that space? Is anybody, am I preaching to anybody? Or is it too scary in church to not to act like you don't have it all together? You can be honest in church. Maybe it was for healing. Have you ever experienced that? I mean, I can, I can bring you into, into a picture of my own family. My own family, we've gone through cancer. Many people in my family have had cancer and several have died from it. My, both my grandfathers. My grandfather Ingersoll was a, a man of God. He served faithfully in the church the most of his life. He was the superintendent of the Wesleyan Church of Canada for like 30 years And he came down with cancer and he had to back out of his position, but that wasn't without a ton of prayer. A bunch of people were praying, churches upon churches were praying for my grandfather. And you want to believe, I believe in healing and my family believes in healing. We've seen it. But praying for the man of God, praying for my grandfather. And I've talked to my grandmother since he's been passed away for, I think, 27 years now. And my grandmother talking about, yeah, we we fully believe that that grandpa was going to be healed. My family believed that, but... That didn't go that way. He, he passed away of cancer. Then fast forward the clock another 27 years or so, another, another 20 some years, my grandfather on my mother's side, same thing, he got cancer. 
And we got praying because we're a family of faith and we believe God heals and we've seen God heal. And so why wouldn't we pray for healing? That's the word of God. The word of God says, lay your hands on the sick and they shall recover. So of course we're going to do that. And we prayed for healing for my grandfather. I'll never forget the Christmas. It was his last Christmas where we gave him a globe. And on the globe, it had hundreds of little stickers. And the stickers represented people around the world who were praying for him. I remember sitting there with him and him saying, I'll definitely be healed now. That many people praying for me, that many people agreeing, agreeing for my healing, it's bound to happen. And we believed, but he died. Same with my cousin Lindsay this past spring. We've seen it in our family. We've seen both. We've seen the miraculous provision of God, but we've also seen what seemed like an unfulfilled promise and a gap of expectation. Has anybody ever been there? What do you do when you're, you're holding the promise of God in your hand, saying, God, you, you said, you said, this was your idea. You said, you told me to believe for healing. You told me to trust you for provision. What do you do when you're in that place? What do you do with the gap? How do you respond to that? This is why I didn't need to do any kind of interesting illustration to begin my message. You know exactly what I'm talking about. A lot of us try to deal with it in different ways. There are four primary ways I think many of us try to reconcile that space. There is a space there, and, and many of us try to reconcile it. The first one is when people just give up on God. They, they give up on faith. They think, well, there could be no God. Obviously, there's not a good God in this world. Obviously, God is not in control. Do you see ISIS? Do you see cancer? Do you see the disease? There's too big a gap between what God says he is and what I'm experiencing. And so people, they leap to kind of this dismissal dismay. There's no God. I don't have time for that. But that's not how most of us in here respond. We believe the word where the word says the fool says in their heart, there is no God. The fool says it. It's foolish. It's dumb. So some people jump to this idea where, okay, I'm not going to dismiss God. I have many friends. I have several friends like this who have gone through seasons with God where God did something or they perceived that God did something or were left holding the unfulfilled promise. And so instead of just saying, I can't say there is no God, I'm not that, I'm not like that. But what I did is I got defiant of him. People get defiant. They, they voice their displeasure to him in such a way that they, they defy God and they say, you aren't good and I want nothing to do with you, even while they still believe in him. But I wouldn't say that's dumb. I would say that's dangerous. You do not want to take your last breath and open your eyes before an almighty God in defiance. I'll tell you, you're going to lose that one. So some people, they'll move from this idea of this, this response of displeasure, this response of dismay or dismissal. And some people, and you'll find this in churches, and I'm just going to go there for a second. Some Christians, you're not ready to say there is no God and you know better than to just be mad at God and live in a form of defiance with him. So what we do is we get delusional. We get delusional where we'll live this way in this kind of self-denial where we're kind of lift, like close our eyes and plug our ears and hum a, a song and pretend like things that are in our lives that are happening aren't really happening. You ever met a Christian like that? I don't have cancer in Jesus' name. Yeah, doctor says you have cancer. 
And so they live in denial and delusion. But we just talked on week one about Jesus doesn't want you to live in denial or delusion. He wants you to see farther and see the more. And so we realize we can't live that way. And frankly, that's destructive. There have been many people searching for answers and searching for hope that have felt the the destruction of that kind of lifestyle. And so where most of us end up when it comes to these gaps, most of us are left dumbfounded. We don't really know what to do with those times in our lives. And let me just say it as a believer, and I've experienced it and so have you. There are spaces and times and seasons and circumstances in life where you feel like you are left holding the dead promise. And we don't know what to do with that, do we? We know better than getting angry at God. We know God is there. And we aren't about to live in delusion like that didn't happen. And so what do you do when the promise goes unfulfilled or half fulfilled? How do you reconcile the promise of God with your experience? Did you know there are 5,467 divine promises in the Bible? which is awesome, and and, and that's an incredible thing, and I believe that every one of them are true and that that's God's word. There are 5,467 divine promises in the Bible. They're not suggestions. They're not bribes. They're not tricks. They're, they're, They're promises God has made to humanity. God promises to prosper us. Did you know that? Jeremiah 29, 11 says, God promises to prosper us, to give us a hope and a future. Isaiah 40 tells us that God promises to strengthen the weary, to lift them up on eagles' wings. Philippians 4.19, Paul says, my God will supply all your needs. God promises provision. God promises to restore health. Jeremiah 30 says, I will restore your health. Isaiah 41.10 says, I will uphold you with my right hand. Proverbs 20, verse 7, talks about our children. says, I will bless the children of the righteous and their children's children. Jesus told us, he promised, he promised, he said, you will do even greater things than these. He said, lay your hand upon the sick and they shall recover. Cast out demons, raise the dead. Jesus said all those things. And I believe they're true. This isn't, this isn't a sermon about is that true or not. We've established that. It is true. The question is, what do you do with the gap between what God has said and what your experience is? I want to look at this woman's story, and we're going to read on here. And I think what she does is she gives us some handles on how to kind of process that time. And I don't know what your I don't know what your promise is. I mean, you picture that woman, and there she is. She held her boy in her lap, and he passed away in her arms. And I don't know what promise you're holding today. But I want to just look at what she does, and I want to form our response to our own promises and our own expectation gap, and I want to look at how she responded. So in verse 21, it says this, and we're going to look at what she does. I love this woman. Just saying, I have been been studying her for two weeks. This woman is a rock star. Like, watch what she does. She is incredible, and it gives us some handles and clues. Are you with me? I know this, uh, th- that was heavy, but this is going to encourage you. I promise. You're going to leave here uplifted. Watch what she does, and let's put on kind of, let's take off the veil and ask God to speak deeper in here than what we might see at face value. Are you with me? Yeah. East? Awesome. Verse 21. So the boy dies in verse 20. Verse 21, it says, here's what she did next. She went up and she laid him on the bed beside the man of God. She laid him on the bed of the man of God. 
Remember last week, she built a room for the man of God on her house. That's where the blessing came from. So she laid him in that room and then she shut the door behind her. So she doesn't want anybody to know that the boy's dead yet. Watch what she does. It's incredible. So she calls her husband and she said, can you send me one of the servants? She like pulls out her iPhone and texts him. Can you send me a servant? She sent me an Uber. Uh, so that, so that I can go to the man of God and look at her faith and quickly return. I'm going to get the man of God. So the husband texts back and says, why go to him today? It's not the new moon. It's not the Sabbath. The sea dogs aren't playing. Like, you're, what are you, why, why, what's the occasion? So she would often go to this man of God and he's just wondering. It's not unusual, but it's unusual on this random day. What's up? He's inquiring. Look at her response. That's all right. Another, another translation, the, the KJV says, it'll be well. Have you ever asked somebody a question and you can tell by their answer they're not wanting to have this conversation? So her basically saying, it's, it's like uh, when I ask my wife, when I'm getting the look and I say, are you, what's up? She's how are you? Fine. <laughs> Door closed, right? <laughs> Move on. We're, come back in an hour or 10. <laughs> She's not wanting to have the conversation. She says, it'll be all right. That's all right. Don't worry about me. Just give me the donkey. So she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and she came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel is a significant mountain. We're going to preach about that next week. Elijah, Elijah, Elisha's mentor, did an amazing work on Mount Carmel. And we're going to talk about that coming up. So she heads to Mount Carmel where Elisha's hanging out. And when he, Elisha, saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, look, the Shunammite woman's coming. Is that the Shunammite woman? Is that the Shunammite woman? <laughs> Run to meet her and ask her. So Gehazi runs out and asks her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Is your car all right? What, is everything all right? Is, what, is, what's up? That's what, they could have just said, what's up? We would have known, right? Everything is all right, she said. Again, watch what she's doing. She is closing the door on this conversation. Gehazi, I did not come to talk to you, my friend. I'm going to the man of God. I'm going up that mountain and I'm going to talk to him first. Do you see what's happening here? Gehazi tries to talk to her. Her husband tries to talk to her. She's not having either one of these conversations. And here's the first point I wanted just to, to pull out of here. When it comes to these expectations gaps, we have to first and foremost take hold of heaven's perspective. She wasn't about to consult her husband. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying if your child goes ill or dies, like talk to your husband. That's not what this is trying to say. It's showing what her response is to trial and tragedy. She doesn't pull out her phone and go to WebMD some doctors in here like, preach. <laughs> Everyone's self-diagnosed now, aren't they? Like, I think it's a minor ear infection with a slight tinge of lung strap. Yeah. <laughs> Poor doctors. Everyone's an expert now. Thank you, internet. She doesn't consult WebMD. She doesn't call her friends. She doesn't like text her girlfriend. Hey, she, she doesn't, she's not having any conversation. And I want to just look, I know we're having fun, but this is serious. She goes straight to the man of God. I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking to you. I'm beginning this process with him. I'm beginning my process 
top down. I'm climbing the mountain to get God's perspective. I'm going to the man of God. Before I have any more discussion, before I even have my full reaction, I need God's perspective on this. This is so loaded for you. You need to see this. Don't miss this. If you are going through that season, if you find yourself holding a half-fulfilled promise, the first thing you do is not to try to filter the whole situation on the horizontal plane. You get God's perspective. And if you're like me, that's not your gut reaction. Usually, if you're like me, we try, to, we try to filter where is God down into our circumstance, don't we? We try to run God through the lens of our understanding. We try to say, well, if this happened and this happened, then what's up, God? Can you, fi- what? what? Right? Isn't that a reaction? We try to funnel our understanding and we frame our understanding on the horizontal plane and we try to fit God into it. And this shows us that is not the response of faith. The response of faith when it comes to these gaps and these struggles is to actually get God's perspective on reality. You work it out top down. And most of us, we live our lives bottom up, don't we? Well, this happened, therefore this means this, therefore this means this, therefore I'm mad at you, God. And God would have you flip that and begin top down. This is why the Bible, this is why the Bible constantly tells us to constantly have the mind of heaven. Paul, the apostle, a great hero, one of my favorite guys in the whole Bible, he said it like this in Colossians chapter 3. He said, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Set your heart, your your emotions, don't consult. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Look at this, set your mind, your framework, your paradigm on things above, not earthly things. And now we're gonna get to dealing with the problem in a second, but you need to understand the framework in which the person of faith operates is top down. It begins with God, it doesn't end with God. And most of us, our response is we, we end up at God, and God wants us to begin there, like, like Mary, the mother of Jesus. We talked a little bit about her last week because these, these two stories run parallel. And we found that when she got the promise of God, uh, she said, may it be unto me as you have said. And then the, the story goes, she goes off, and she hangs out with her cousin who's also pregnant, And she has to be wondering what's going on at this time. I mean, she's pregnant. The the stresses of pregnancy is happening. The the social stresses are happening. And it says instead of worrying, instead of worrying about all the things that can go wrong, Mary didn't worry, she worshipped. And if you read in Luke chapter 2, it records a song. The, the, The famous term for it is the Magnificat. And it's Mary's song where she begins her response and her framework that she operates begins with, my soul magnifies the Lord for he has been good to me. Regardless of the things that are happening, regardless of the fact that God said I was going to be blessed and I'm riding a donkey to Bethlehem where I'm riding a donkey and I'm nine months pregnant, my, 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 my town doesn't know what's up. But regardless of that, my soul magnifies the Lord for he has been good to me. Your response is worship. It's praise. She begins top down. Here's a question I have for you. What would happen if you set your mind on things above and looked up at your situation and you looked at your situation from God's vantage point? What would happen? I was thinking this week, of the famous story of John Wesley. Many of you might know who he is. He's actually the, the founder of the Methodist movement, of which our church is actually a branch of a branch of a branch off of that. And uh, 
John Wesley records the story of him being on a boat one night, like one of those old ships. He sailed everywhere and he was on a boat and they're about to be wrecked. They were in a terrible sh- a storm and he was scared for his life. And he records in his journal that he saw these guys, these Christian guys are called Moravians. And he saw them sitting in the same bowels of the same ship and they weren't scared at all. Like they were like playing cards. Like they, they just weren't worried about it. Like they weren't, they just peace. And John Wesley realized in that moment, they see something and they have something that I do not have. And that began John's search and, and hunt to, re, to know God and to know the Holy Spirit and to get this new perspective on reality. You see, there's a way to look at life that changes the perspective on the way we go through things. And I love this woman. Before she talks to her husband, before she does anything, she has this bigger picture where she takes it up. She takes it up to the mountain, to the man of God. She takes it to him. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.12, even though I suffer. See, he wasn't delusional. I love that. He wasn't delusional. He said, even though I suffer. He didn't pretend like he didn't, but look what he says. Even though I suffer, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him, which is his life his eternal life. Don't consult your feelings before you consult your savior. Don't consult your friends. Don't consult your logic. We begin with God. Now watch though, this gets raw and it gets real. Let's keep going. It says in verse 27, when she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet, which is a way to say she fell at his feet. Here comes the grief. Here comes the sorrow. I mean, it was there. This woman wasn't Superman. She wasn't just not feeling it because she had such a kingdom perspective. You know, the Bible makes all kinds of room for human sorrow. Do you know that Jesus is a man acquainted with sorrow? It says in John 10 that Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus, even though he fully knew I was going to raise him again. He knows the emotion of humankind. And it says this woman, she wasn't pretending like it didn't hurt. It hurt and she fell at the man of God's feet. It says that Gehazi came over to push her away, which he was doing that out of reverence for the man of God. This was inappropriate that she would touch the holy man. But the man of God said, leave her alone. She's in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. And here she she goes. Here it comes. She lets him have it. I love it. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? I love how honest that is. Did I ask you for a son? Didn't I tell you don't raise my hopes? I said don't go there and you went there. Didn't I? Did I ask you for this? Don't raise my hopes. Eliza then said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak in. You're going to tuck your cloak in. Take my, take, take your, take my staff in your hand. Run. Don't greet anyone. Go and, and, and do not answer if anyone greets you. And laid my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother, here she goes again, said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. Basically, which is to say, sir, you're coming with me. So don't send your staff. I don't want your stick. I want you. I love it. She's, she's just so honest with the man of God. And now, Elisha is not God, but he is God's representative in this story. And this gives us a picture of how we can come to God. And here's my second, my second point with, when it comes to these expectation gaps. You need to take hold of the source of the promise. 
take hold of the source of the promise. This promise she understood with all of her sorrow, and, and we're going to get there, we're going to see that, that she, she, she was honest with this, but she understood that this promise had a source and she took it back to him. Return to sender. Right? She, she went back to him and fell at his feet. And I love how honest this is. I mean, she fell at his feet and she was honest with God. She, she asked him tough questions. God, I, I didn't ask you for this. Can I just say something that might free a whole bunch of people that think they need to pretend in church up? Do you know that God can handle your questions? Do you know that God can handle your hurt? God can handle your sorrow. God can handle your inadequacies. God can handle your shortcomings. I think it's so amazing how, how we try to hide from God. Do you know that God sees through you? God sees the you you don't even know is there. Bible says God knew you before you even existed. He formed you together in your mother's womb. And so often we come to God with such a, 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 degree, a degree of guardedness. God sees through it. And she's so honest with him. Did I ask you for this? It does you no good to pretend with God. Does you no good to pretend with God. She was honest with him. Now can I just be honest here? Like sometimes church people pretend more than anybody else. How you doing? Oh, bless the Lord, I'm good. No, you're not. She is fully honest with God. Did I ask you for this? The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 6, Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, humble yourself so that in due time he may exalt you. Verse 7 says, cast all your anxiety, cast all of your cares, not just some of them, not that some are just church appropriate. All of your cares, your pornography addiction, your bitterness, your hatred of that person that you know you need to get over, all of your cares, all of your anxieties, cast them on him for he cares for you. Isn't that an amazing invitation? She took hold of, of him, fell at his feet. She goes back to the source. She said, did I ask you? Did I ask you? Here's a, here's a question. When it comes to promises, who bears the weight of the responsibility, the promiser or the promisee? I don't know if the promisee is a word, but you know what I mean. Is it the promiser or the promisee? The promiser. Like, like I was thinking about this. If, if, if tonight Pastor Dan and Linda decided to walk home from the Valley Campus and Pastor Dan found a Lotto Max ticket and it, and it was set for life, $100 million, and, and he wins. I wish that upon him. May it be so, Lord. <laughs> And then he calls me, he says, pastor, guess what? I won the lottery and, and I'm set for life and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the church a big bit. And you know what, man? I, 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 so, I so appreciate you and Melanie. I'm going to buy you a house. And I'll be like, Dan, that's, that's so nice, man. Bless you, sir. And I'll be like, I'll be waiting. You let me know. <laughs> and then like three months goes by and, and I don't hear anything from Dan or Linda. And so I just send Dan a text. Hey, man thinking about you, God is good, right? Like, right? And then, then like 10 months go by, just I see him in the hall. Hey man, blessed, too blessed to be stressed, right? And, and then like a year goes by and I have to call like, hey man, uh, remember you, you know, that time you said, buy me a house and stuff. Like, is that going to happen? He's like, oh man, it turns out a hundred million just won't do what it used to. And, and uh, I'm not going to have enough left for you. Who's at fault there? It's not me. It's Dan. 
It's Dan's fault. He's the one that didn't uphold his promise. And the woman understood this principle. That it's God's promise and he will bear the weight of responsibility. So if there's ever a promise in your life, you're like, this hasn't come to fulfillment or it's died. God is able and strong enough to bear the responsibility of his promise. God's like, oh, I hope they don't call me on that promise about healing. I hope they don't call me up on that promise about their children and children's children. God knows what he said and he can bear it. She returns it to him. She falls at his feet and she brings him. And then I love how she says, Elisha tries to send his, his staff. And she's like, I don't want your stick. You're coming with me. And she brings him back to her house. And that's such a cool picture. And that's such a cool picture of God. Do you know that God isn't just God on the mountain? He's God in the valley. God is not just God over your struggles, but God is God in them. That's what Emmanuel, the prophetic name for Jesus, is God with us. God wants to be God over your storm and in your storm. And she invites him right in to the heart of the tragedy. She brings him right into the gap, if you will. Takes him home. Let's kind of finish up. And it says in verse 31, this kind of gets weird for a second, granted. It's a prophetic story. And we're going to have to put prophetic eyes on to understand this. But watch what happens. It's awesome. It says in verse 31, Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi goes, he runs out ahead of Elisha. We don't know how old Elisha is now, but Gehazi's clearly faster. And he runs out, he gets there, puts the stick on the guy's face, on the boy's face, nothing happens. So Gehazi runs back. He, he's tired today. He runs back to meet Elisha and told him, the boy is not awakened. He's, he's still dead. The promise is still dead. When Elisha reached the house, there was a boy lying. There the boy was lying on his couch. And he went in and he shut the door on the two of them and he prayed to the Lord. He begins to pray. Then he got, to the, he got on the bed and he lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hand. Weird, I know, but go with it. As he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away. It didn't fully work. It just seemed like there were signs. And he, he turned away and he walked back and forth in the room. Presumably he was praying or talking to God like, God, we got to do something here. Let's make this happen. And then it says he then got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. And then the boy sneezed seven times. You can chuckle at that. It's strange. Some of you new, new Christians are like, can I laugh at the Bible? This is weird, legit, but bear, go with me. I'm going, to make it, I'm going to make it make sense here. The boy sneezes seven times and then opens his eyes. He's resurrected. Crazy, right? And then it says, Elisha summoned Gehazi and called the Shunammite, and he did. And, and, and when she came, he said, take your son. Get that in your mind. Take your son. And she came in and she fell at his feet and bowed to the ground and she took her son and went out. The promise of God had been resurrected and fulfilled in her life. Now, what is going on there? I want to just help us look a little deeper. Now, when you read the Bible, there are different ways you can interpret it and different ways you can look. And one of the ways you need to understand the Bible is many times it speaks through prophetic words and prophetic imagery. And when, especially when you're dealing with the prophet, there's all kinds of things that you need to understand on those lines. And one of those things has to do with numbers. 
Numbers in the Bible are significant. For us, they're at most like a good luck charm, right? Like, ah, uh, lucky number seven. We don't even believe it's actually luck, right, in our culture. In, in Hebrew culture and in the Bible, when you read it, numerology is significant and numbers matter because they communicate something. They want to tell you a greater story. So if we look at the numbers in this, it's going to bring some things to life. The first thing I want you to note is how many attempts it took to actually raise this boy from the dead. It's significant because it wasn't on the first try. When Gehazi went out, it wasn't on the second try when Elisha went in the room and prayed. It wasn't on the third try when Elisha laid down mouth to mouth, arms to arm, or hand to hand, chest to chest. It wasn't on the fourth time when Elisha paced the room and had it out with God. It was on the fifth time that Elisha laid on the boy and prayed, and it happened. What is significant about the number five? Five is the number of grace. Five is the number of God's grace. So this is already speaking about grace. Now get in your mind. Now, if pro tip is if you resolve the fact that everything in your Bible is about Jesus, if it happened before Jesus, it's pointing to Jesus. If it happened after Jesus, it's pointing back to Jesus. The whole thing is about Jesus. So you need to understand, effort number five to resurrect him was on grace. Number five, grace. Now let's keep going. Let's see if we can pull some other things out. It says that he sneezed seven times. Now that's weird, yes, but when you think about the significance of what's happening, what's a sneeze? Sneezes are the rejection it's the projection and rejection of a breath or of something in your lungs. And so the dead boy sneezed seven times. Now, what's the significance about number seven? Seven is the number of God. It's the number of completion. So after the seventh sneeze, it was finished. And the boy's eyes open. And now here's where it gets interesting. This boy, now this isn't the first time we've heard a story like this. In fact, if you go back into 1 Kings, Elijah, Elisha's mentor, also resurrected somebody by doing the whole like face-to-face, hands-to-hands, chest-to-chest thing that happened before. We've seen that before, but we will see it again in the future. This is not the first miraculously, divinely appointed son to die and be raised to life. There is, get this, in the Old Testament, there are seven miraculous divine sons. There are seven. The first six have names. The first six have names. All through, Sarah gave birth to Isaac. Rebecca gave birth to Jacob and Esau. Rachel gave birth to Joseph. Manoah's wife gave birth to Samson. Hannah gave birth to Samuel. And the Shunammite woman gave birth to a boy with no name. I wonder if this is speaking about someone else who already has a name. The seventh son in the Old Testament. Now, I might just be getting worked up about some numbers, or I might be looking deeper into what the Word of God is saying, and it's speaking about a greater son, a greater reality that wasn't just given to one woman, but given to humankind. And get this, he died and was resurrected, and he is available for us to take. Here's the whole point of this whole text, of this whole story, and it's this. We ask this question, what do you do when the promises of God seem only half fulfilled? What do you do to reconcile the gap between what God's word has said and what you expect to see and what you've seen? How do you fill the gap? Here it is. You take hold of the son. You take hold of the son. Elisha says, 
take hold of your son, grab on to your son. And this, this act that this woman was doing, taking her son is a picture of a greater reality and a greater invitation for humankind that there would be a child born of, of miraculous descent and that he would die a death, a death that would be accomplishing a great work. Seven, it was finished. And that we would be offered the opportunity to take hold of this son by the grace of Jesus. And so this is a picture of the grace of God given to us in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to just help you understand this. Take hold of the son that Jesus is the fulfillment. I ask this question. Stay with me because you need to know this. How do we reconcile or fill the gap between the promises of God and our experience? The son. You take hold of the son. Jesus is the fulfillment of of all of the promises of God. That's incredible news. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Let me show you. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said this. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish the law or the prophets. What's he talking about? The law of God, the law of Moses, God's moral standard. I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish the the prophets. Why would he say I came to abolish the law and the prophets? Because many of us presume there is an, indef- uh, an, an unsurpassable gap, don't we, between what we can do and those promises and the law. And Jesus said, I did not come to abolish it or bring it down. I came to fulfill it and bring you up to it. This is what he's saying. I didn't come. I came to fulfill the law. Is this too much teaching for you today? I came to fulfill the law. He, he said in Luke chapter four, this is this incredible story. Jesus is like when he began his ministry, he goes into the synagogue. He takes the, he takes the scroll of Isaiah and he starts reading it. And the prophet says, the prophet speaks the word of the Lord and says, the deaf will hear, the blind will see, the, the lame will walk, the dead will, be, will rise, the, the prisoner will be set free. And Jesus rolls the scroll back up and he says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying the promises of God are fulfilled in your hearing. Why? Because I'm here. The Son of God fulfills all the promises of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Here's here's the point. When you receive Jesus, you receive all the promises of God. When you take hold of the Son through faith, you have taken hold of all of the promises of God. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 2, or 2 Corinthians 1 verse 19, he says, for the Son of God, this is it, if you remember nothing else, remember this, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. Right? It wasn't like this lofty promise, like you can have eternal life and you can prosper and you can have freedom and you can be unashamed and you can be accepted. It wasn't yes, but no, not really. That's not what we proclaim to you. He says, but in him, it was always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him in Jesus. He is the fulfill. I'm getting excited about this. He is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. And so Paul says that that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to the glory of God. What's amen mean? It says, let it be unto me. Amen. When you say amen, you're saying, yes, me too. 
or I want that. That's what amen means. And so when you're saying amen to Jesus, you're, you're saying amen, you're taking hold of the Son. You're taking hold of all the promises of God, our yes and amen. So this is why Paul, back full circle, this is why Paul was saying, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Why? Because in Christ, there is healing. In Christ, there is prosperity. In Christ, there is peace. In Christ, there is hope. In Christ, there is victory. In Christ, there is blessing. In Christ, there is favor. In Christ, there is salvation. In Christ, there is eternal life. In Christ, there is redemption. All of the promises, every single promise, every single one of them are personified and fulfilled and delivered to you in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, he says, and I don't know if you still have that scripture, but back in Philippians 3, he says, not that I've already obtained all this. I'm not saying that I've already obtained all the promises of God or I've arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I, I take hold of Christ and all the promises that he died and rose again to give me. He says, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, and I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Isn't that an amazing invitation? I don't know what gaps you have in your life right now, but Jesus fills them. He is the fulfillment of every promise of God. And so when there is a gap, Jesus is the, how does this work itself out? I, I know I'm, going on here, but I need you to get this. Paul, one time, he, was, he said in, in Corinthians, he was talking about this fact that he had this thorn in his flesh. Paul had an ailment that wasn't going away. And it, the Bible says that he pleaded to God three times, God, would you, would you remove this thorn from my flesh? Now, remember who Paul is? This dude, they were sending his handkerchiefs around because he was so loaded with power and people were getting healed because they touched his like, snot rag. Like That's, that's Paul. And yet Paul was pleading with God on this gap, right? Like, you imagine Paul, like, God, I know what you said. Jesus, we met that time. I have been to heaven. I have resurrected people. You have resurrected people. But at my hand, like, the things this man has seen, and yet there he is with a thorn in his flesh, and he says, what's up? Three times I pleaded, and he said, Jesus gave me a response. He said, my grace, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What's he saying? I bring your strength up. I fill those gaps, those places where you have not, those places where the promise has died. I bring resurrection power and the promise of eternal life to fulfill the gaps. So Paul says, therefore, I'll boast all the more of my weaknesses, for when I am weak, he is strong. Would you stand with me? I want to pray for you. You guys in the East as well. I want to pray for you. I don't really know what your gaps are. I don't know where your expectations are and where your disappointments are. But I want to just tell you today, take the sun, take hold of Jesus, draw near to Jesus, find that his grace is sufficient, find that he is complete, find that there is nothing left uncovered, that, that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. 
And what I wanted to do to end our time together, I'm going to pray for us really quick, and I'm going to release us to receive communion together. You guys in the East as well, online, you're going to have to watch this one. But what we're going to do is we're going to receive communion. And communion is essentially a picture of what you have received in Christ Jesus through faith. Jesus, the night he was betrayed, the Bible says that he looked at his friends and he would have looked at us if we were there. And he said, this is my body. He took some bread and he broke it. And he said, it's been broken for you. Why? To fulfill your debt of sin. To fulfill your debt of shame. To fulfill your debt. He's been broken on our behalf. Fulfillment. He says, take it, eat it in remembrance of me. Receive what I've given you. And then he took a cup and he poured out some wine. We have grape juice here. But he poured out some wine and he said, take this cup. This is the cup of the new covenant and it represents my blood which has been poured out for you to fill up your cup, to fill up your gaps, to fill up your hurts, to fill up your shame, to fill up your despair and your hopelessness. I'm giving that to you. Take this in remembrance of me. And so today, I don't know what your gaps are, but as you come to the table, and I invite you to come. If you're not a believer, maybe today's the day where you decide, I, I need Jesus. You can come to the table too. If you don't believe in God, don't come to the table. But if you believe in God or you're deciding to believe in Jesus, you can come to the table. And I want to pray for you that when you do this mysterious thing that Jesus told us to do, you will find a grace and a presence filling the space of your heart and encouraging you to, like Paul says, press on towards the goal, knowing that there will come a day and there's no more crying, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. The promise will be resurrected and fulfilled. Let's pray. God, we thank you today. And we believe in faith and we take hold of Jesus in faith, saying all the promises in Christ Jesus are yes. And we breathe our amen unto me. Healing is mine in Jesus' name. Prosperity is mine in Jesus' name. Purpose is mine in Jesus' name. Victory over sin now and forever is mine in Jesus' name. Resurrection is mine in Jesus' name. Eternal life is mine in Jesus' name. Hope is mine in Jesus' name. Everything you have set before us has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And so God, thank you for the gift of your grace in your son, Jesus Christ. We come to your table freely, not worthy, but freely receiving that mercy you've bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus. And now, Lord, as we take the elements, may they be more than bread and, and a drink. May it represent the grace that's been given unto us, the complete work of your grace. May it be finished in our hearts. May we leave this place full of hope, full of peace full of freedom, full of promise, full of life, God, because of your son, Jesus, as we take hold of him. We thank you, Jesus, and we give you glory. You are our treasure, and we cling to you now. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen, amen. As the band plays, and you guys in at East as well, I want to release you to come up to the tables. There are also here at the Valley Campus tables at the back. You can take your bread, take your cup, and take it in your own time as we respond in worship. And we're going to respond in thanksgiving today in faith. The promise is yours. So let's let Lord, the Lord lift our heads and fill the gap of our expectation as we come. You're welcome to come. Let's celebrate. Let's thank our Jesus for the grace he's given us. Amen? Amen. amen. You can come.